Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? You're in luck because we just upgraded our job board and we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse job listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Design B&B is looking for a senior project designer in Chicago, Illinois. Constructive is looking for a senior UX designer. This is a remote position. Coforma is looking for a senior software engineer. This is a remote position. American Express is looking for a product manager in the United States. And Work & Co. is looking for a lead recruiter in Los Angeles, California. Posting to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. And while you're there, click on the talent tab at the top of the page and check out our new initiative for companies and job seekers, the 10th Collective. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, last week, I mentioned that we upgraded our job board, and I gave you a tiny little tease about the 10th Collective. So before we start the show, I just want to tell you more about it and let you know how you can become a part of this. So the 10th Collective is a joint effort from Revision Path and State of Black Design to connect black professionals in the design and creative industries with companies committed to hiring black candidates for design and creative positions. Now, this is something that has sort of come out of both uh, what I've been doing with Revision Path and what Omari Souza has been doing with State of Black Design. Now, what Omari does for his event, for example, people can sign up and have their resumes added to this resume book that companies and sponsors will then go through and reach out to people for hiring positions. And for me, for example, for Revision Path, we've had companies reaching out to us, I think, since we started the show back in 2013, as well as job seekers wanting to know where they can find work. You know, if you know about following Revision Path for any length of time, you know, we did our 2015 presentation on where are the black designers at South by Southwest. We ended up doing a redux to that in 2020 with AIGA. There's also a whole nonprofit group and everything that sprung out of that. Not from us. That's from uh, Mitsuyoku uh, called Where Are the Black Designers? And that question really came from companies writing to me asking where they are because they're trying to hire them. And so we came together, both myself and Omari, to create this collective to not only, I guess, answer that question, but also put people that are looking for work directly into conversation with companies that are looking to hire them. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for full-time work, then the 10th Collective is 100% for you. Now, it's invite only, but it's free to apply and to be a member. And like I said, we designed this to help you when you're searching for work 
but also to leave you alone when you're not. We're not going to be spamming you with a whole bunch of information or anything. Once you're in the collective, you'll get curated intros from hiring companies that have been vetted by Revision Path and State of Black Design. And your profile can remain anonymous if you want to hide yourself from specific companies. There are absolutely no unwanted conversations. All introductions are fulfilled on your terms. And now our goal is to make sure that the members of the collective are being connected to opportunities that matter. So not only do we curate the members in the collective, we also curate the companies that have access to them as well. Now, these are companies that are using their resources to ensure black designers achieve equity in the design and creative industries with their peers. We're super excited about it. So if you're listening to this and you want to be a member of the 10th Collective, head over to the10thcollective.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes also. Or you can go to our job board, revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Go to the job board, click the talent link at the top of the page. That will also take you there. So again, check it out. Really would love to have you there. We're going to be inviting companies pretty soon once we start filling out the collective. So you want to be a part of this. I'm telling you. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. This is part two of my conversation with designer, art director, and community builder, Rebecca Brooker. Let's start the show. Wow. That's a lot. I mean, from... It's a long story. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a long story, but like, I mean, there's... Goodness. I mean, having to leave the country like that, that quickly, because the employer forgot to notify you and now you have to move back home but then now you might be moving to another country to argentina like oh my god i guess i'm curious like once you got to argentina like what was what was that like yeah i mean i had never been to south america at all before so this was like a completely new experience for me i had studied a little bit of spanish in in trinidad but never used it in practicality and so i was kind of nervous I ended up meeting two of my bosses, my would-be bosses from that team in New York. And they were telling me, it's a cool place. Like, it's beautiful. It it doesn't snow. You have so much fun. It's great nightlife, like very young culture. The agency is growing. So I was kind of like, all right, you know, this is a totally new opportunity. Like, what else am I going to do with my life? I felt so beat down having to return to Trinidad and not know, should I? think about opening my own agency here? Should I think about getting a job somewhere here? And then this job kind of just fell into my lap. And I was like, all right, we're going to go on another adventure. We're going to see what's in store. When I moved to Argentina, I was just in shock. You know, I was like, in a good way too, in a good way. I was in shock in a way that I was so open to every new experience, Maurice. You know, like I really had to put myself in a mindset that I'm moving to this place I just lost a whole life behind me in, in the States. You know, all my friends are back there, my partners back there, my coworkers, everybody. But I have to look ahead and I have to to be open to whatever comes next, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of just the mindset that I had to keep going with. 
And for the first time in my life, it was like I was living in a studio alone. I would go out to eat at a restaurant and I'd sit alone. And I spent just so much time in the beginning of my move by myself, just, you know, having not made any friends yet outside of the people that I work with in this office. I think that was a turning point in my life where it was the first time I really had to to do that in an environment where it was different when I moved to St. John's because I moved into the dorms and I had, I was immediately like put into a group of people that I could yeah. be friends with. And now I'm 20, God, how old is I? 24, moving to Argentina by myself, don't have anybody there. You go to a restaurant, you order for one, you take a book, you read something. Mm-hmm. And if I heard people speak in English, I would literally turn around and be like, did you just speak English? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was really how I started to make my friends. I would just kind of be this like curious, observant person. If I heard people speak in English, I'd be like, tell me about you. What are you doing here? And that was kind of how I started to find my community. You know, I ended up finding an English speaking gym. It's run by uh, an English guy and he wanted to create a community for English speakers to come together and train. And so I met these people and, and that kind of put me into a new circle of English speaking people in Buenos Aires that led me to kind of my, my own network now. In addition to this, the agency I was working at, I had a, I would say I had problems in the beginning, but I had like anxiety because I was the, one of the only native English speakers, right? Everybody at the agency could speak English, but like, we were usually trained to speak English for like professional use. So in a meeting example, like we would send our clients communications in English, but everybody in the office would talk to each other in Spanish. So, Hmm. you know, they would say something and someone would be raising an issue and everyone's talking in Spanish, meetings are in Spanish. And I was just lost. I could not pick up anything that they were saying, especially also because Argentine Spanish, it has a little different of a dialect than mm-hmm. Mexican Spanish or Spain Spanish. So I couldn't even make out what they were saying. And so many times in my first year, I wouldn't get the joke. People would be laughing. I'd be like, I didn't get it. <laughs> and it just kind of made me feel othered. But when I started to learn Spanish and, and my coworkers, like bless them, they, they made a concerted effort to keep me looped in. Like we would have a meeting in Spanish and then I had a coworker who would come over and say, okay, I'll sit with you and explain everything we just said in English. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just a lot of awkward moments like that until I I got better and I learned. And now I'd say I'm I'm not fluent, but I could understand a lot. I can respond. So it was definitely a moment of growth in my life. I think a moment of solitude, a moment of like acceptance that sometimes things happen and you just have to go with it. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I mean, I, I can't help but think now also in the midst of all of this happening, you also co-founded Queer Design Club, which is also kind of about helping to bring together a community while you were also like in your own life trying to find community. Talk to me about Queer Design Club. Yeah, I think Queer Design Club on introspection is a manifestation of me looking for a lot of things in my life. And you just kind of named it where like, I felt motivated on one hand to make this community because I was, I was in a real moment of my life of solitude, where I had my online friends, I had people that I could reach out to from New York, but, you know, I spent the majority of my nights, I go to the office and I come home and I'd be by myself. And I was just like, there must be something I could be doing 
with my time right now, right? There must be something I could be doing. And at the same time, I was looking to connect with other queer graphic designers, right? Because I think the other side of my life that going not to go back too far to the Trinidad thing, but like not having that community in Trinidad, not necessarily having that community at St. John's either. Mm -hmm. It kind of left me wondering, like, where are my queer friends? Like, I don't have enough queer friends. And, you know, I actually want to meet queer friends that I have something in common with. So like maybe queer designers. And I started to Google and I started to look for like spaces online for queer designers. Was there a community? Was there a place? And there was nothing I could find. You know, I found out in tech. I found lesbians who tech. But those, when I joined those communities, they felt huge, right? They felt like there were tens of thousands of people in there. And I don't know who would be my friend. Mm -hmm. So that was really kind of what drove me to have this initial idea of like, why don't I start a queer community online? And I'd started putting together some ideas just like very loosely. And one day I went on Twitter and I saw a different person had created a handle for like LGBTQ people in design or something. And I was like, what? That's my idea. <laughs> no, I wasn't really like that. I was like, this is cool. <laughs> Someone else is also thinking about this. I'm going to message them and let them know that I have the same idea. And that's how I met John, John Voss. And we began chatting. I shared my deck of ideas with him. He shared his idea with me. And we came together to form QDC. And at the time, John and I were not friends. We were just two strangers that met on Twitter. We began co-working. He's in San Francisco. I'm in BA. And working towards, let's make a Slack. Let's make a directory. And let's see if, if other queer people will join. And we didn't know who would join. Like, you know, like I had a handful of friends that I knew were LGBTQ. He had a handful of friends. We knew some people on Twitter. But everybody felt really disparate and disconnected. So when we joined, when we formed the community, it was really just a place for us to have like a clubhouse to hang out in and talk about the experience of like, oh, I'm the only queer person on my team. And I don't know how to bring my partner to the work event. Or I don't identify as cis and my boss keeps misgendering me. You know, like we saw people having these experiences and we wanted to bring them together to talk about them some more. So that's kind of how we founded QDC. And I think over the years, one of the things that I've really, really noticed about the community is just that like, this was not something that just John and I were looking for. This is something that mm -hmm. many, many people needed, maybe much more than I did. and you know, the growth that we've had over the years, the constant like commitment from our members to keeping the space fresh, giving each other advice, helping each other, just general resource sharing and kind of like this communal online living, I think has really just changed my perception of what QDC is or, or what it should be. What started as just like a side hobby for John and I has turned into a lifeline for some people, yeah. you know, and I think that was kind of when it was a turning point for me that I was like, oh, shit, we we did something we got to do right by our people. Now that mm -hmm. we've gathered them all here in this community, there's thousands of them. They're looking at us and I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> so I think that was the real question that we had is like, OK, now that we've formed these, this community, what value are we going to bring to their lives? Mm. And 
one of the early questions well, we were like, okay, there's all these people in our Slack. We actually don't know anything about them because when we let people join the Slack, we just ask them their name and their email. We don't know anything about where they are, who they are, what titles do they have, how much money do they make? Like, who is our community really? You know, we know the people exist. We know that. We have proof of concept. But who are they in their identity, right? And if we're going to position ourselves to serve a community of people, we have to first find out who these people are and what are their needs. So that was kind of like the things that John and I were mulling over. And uh, we decided to formulate the Core Design Count. So the Core Design Count is the only survey in the design industry that is specifically for LGBTQ people in design. And the reason we did that was because we, when we were looking for data about our own people, we couldn't find any. There was no data out there about the community. The AIGA design census asks one question, and it's, are you LGBTQ? Mm-hmm. And from that data, you can make a few uh, inferences with the percentages, but there just wasn't anything deeper than that one question, that one yeah. checkbox. Yeah. So we decided to formulate our own survey. And in the first year, 2019, which was also our first year as a community, we ended up with close to 1,500 responses. And John and his loving partner, Lori, who is a data analyst, thank God, lovingly went through these thousands of responses and wrote the first iteration of the core design count, where we made a lot of interesting insights about the community. I think one of the things the differences about our survey was while it, it, it was both qualitative and quantitative. We got some hard facts, we got some data, but we also had opportunities for people to write in their own responses about why they felt certain things or why they chose a certain answer. And some of like the written testimonials are just so powerful. I think that that was one of the things that really showed us the need for this space within the community and how we had a lot of work to do if we were going to plan to change anything in the design industry. It was not a singular problem. It was not any one person's problem. It was a structural problem that LGBTQ persons were making less than non-LGBTQ people. They were leaving the industry much faster and much younger. So they were not making it to seniority levels. And they were experiencing more bias on a daily basis than other groups out there especially when it comes to having an intersectional identity, right? So Black, Mm -hmm. queer, trans people were most likely to be discriminated against, left out, and having to point out like design decisions that went against their existence. A really great example of this is like when you are a product designer and your team may be designing some forms and they put options on a form for male, female. Mm-hmm. There's no inclusive lens. There's no inclusive perspective to this that would include a trans person. Now, a queer person working on that team has to point out and say, hey, this is not inclusive towards people who identify as LGBTQ. We need to change this form. And I think there are a lot of like instances of that nature that happen prevalently on a daily basis throughout the design industry, where people get misgendered, people get mislabeled. And we can preach about it as much as we want. It all ladders back up to like, we need more diverse teams to bring lived experiences and unique perspectives to the work. And that is part of why we believe LGBTQ designers have a great opportunity to become champions in the workplace. And they're not currently given that opportunity. That is fantastic. I mean, I think even just the fact that 
this design count that you're doing is kind of in one way building, I don't want to say it's building on research that that others have done, but it's sort of like you saw what AIGA was doing in terms of Mm -hmm. their census. And you're like, yeah, this isn't enough. We need to do something that's more for our community that we're building here. And so you did this, this queer design count. And I guess what are like some of the lessons you learned while building this? I mean, I know you kind of mentioned that this community came about because you, you sort of discovered that other folks wanted this community too, but even in, in building the count and looking at the results from it, like, what are some of the findings or some of the things that you just learned throughout this process? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think that one of the major things that I learned is that even within the queer community, there's discrimination. Like white gay men still make more money than people who identify as lesbian, right? So even within the queer community, we still have hierarchies of, of the patriarchy and, and kind of like gender wage gap and things that are, are pre- prevalent outside of the LGBTQ community, they're also happening within the LGBTQ community. So that was something that was a little bit surprising to us, but probably shouldn't be because it exists on all levels, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of your identity. I think one of the other things that we found was just that like people were so eager to participate in this count because there was no other place that they could share this information. So I think this was especially true in 2021 when we did the second iteration of the count in a pandemic world, when we released and we actually added a special section of the count that year for COVID because we wanted to understand what the pandemic has changed about our data, right? So a great example of this is we found that in 2021, 46% of trans, 41% of transgender designers lost employment due to COVID-19 in comparison to 29% of cis designers. So Mm. this is a a huge gap, right? 41 versus 29. And on first glance, we didn't know what that date, what that stat is really telling us, right? On one hand, is it telling us that trans designers got fired more than, than cis designers? Because that could be one way to read it. The other way to read it could be the trans designers due to the pandemic gain more autonomy in being able to work for themselves. Did they participate in, quote unquote, the great resignation and walk into this power of being able to work for themselves and make their own decisions? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But this was where now we would look at some of the responses and testimonials that we got in, in as an answer to that question to try to make a better analysis, right? And one of the things that we found is that when we look at these testimonials, Maurice, people are pouring their heart out for mm. us. Like it was the first time that people wrote paragraphs of what they were going through. And I think for a lot of queer people, this survey was relieving and like a, an outlet, almost like therapy, because they didn't have another place to talk about getting fired from their job. They didn't mm-hmm. have another place to talk about losing all of their clients and having to move back in with their homophobic parents. This was kind of a a space. And I think this is important. And why we do this work is because we want to create a space for queer people to feel seen and heard and understood. And we want to be able to take those findings and use that as a benchmark in the industry to say, hey, every single year, y'all corporate companies are talking about supporting LGBTQ people. Right. Mm -hmm. You put up all these pride parades, you put up all these pride flags, rainbow your logos. And when we survey the people that you say you're impacting, the stats aren't changing. 
LGBTQ designers are still making less than non-LGBTQ designers. Like we want to be able to use this survey as a biannual pulse check on the industry to really understand if, if we're meeting our goals of improving and bettering ourselves as, as, a, as a space. And like I said, I don't think it's anybody's one problem to fix, but as a design industry, we have to come together to hold hands, not just with Queer Design Club, but with all these different communities and movements that are advocating for their own rights, right? Like where are the Black designers, API who design, all of these different, if you want to call them affinity groups, are all going after the same thing. And it's changing the industry to be better for those who have been constantly seen as other. And we want to flip that narrative together, not just for LGBTQ people, but for people who really live at these intersections, because our data and our research has showed us that people who have multiple marginalized identities are the most likely to be left out and left behind. So how can we gather together and all do this work together of changing the design industry for something that is substantial and not feel like we all have to target it in our silos? So that's something that that we we recognize we need to do. We're here to, to research and champion LGBTQ rights, but that is one part of someone's identity, not not everything. So we have to find ways to be intersectional. We have to find ways to continue to work together and elevate people who don't have that, that voice right now or aren't given the space to use their voice. And I mean, I think it's also, you know, kind of worth just putting this in a in a greater context, like you're also pulling this information together at a time where, at least here in the in the United States, like the rights of LGBTQ people are being stripped away through legislation, Absolutely. et cetera. So to really have this this quantitative information that's not just because I think sometimes what can happen, you know, and, and this certainly is the case, I think, with like what I've done with Revision Path and talking with black designers is that a lot of the anecdotal evidence just kind of gets swept under the rug as like individual experiences and it can right. be hard to to sort of really put i don't know i guess confirmation to what's happening without like numbers without like a, some concrete statistics to say this is happening here's the study that shows that you know exactly exactly and i mean one of our goals i think now in 2023 we'll be going into our third year of the core design count one of our goals is to make this an industry benchmark, like I said, biannually. So we want to kind of do exactly what you said is align ourselves as the knowledge resource of that information and for people to know that we are here to understand, research, and, and advocate for the rights of LGBTQ people in design. Because like you said, our rights are under attack federally on a high level, but also it trickles down into your everyday, right? When you can't be yourself outside in the world, how can you be yourself at work? How can you bring your best self to your job every day when your life is under attack? Mm. That's not even just a, a queer thing. That's true. That's true. And now this year, actually next month, since this will be airing in June, you're going to be continuing this with hosting the inaugural Queer Design Summit. This is happening on July Absolutely. 7th. Yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah, well, like I said, so this is our second year doing the count. And the first year, we had a great response. The second year, we wanted to go a little bit bigger. So we were really thinking about how can we get this information on a larger stage? How can we have this information reach the people who may have 
the ability to change it, right? And in my opinion, that's recruiters, corporations, people who do the hiring, people who do the firing, all, <laughs> all of the all of the people who have the power to be able to change the experiences that queer people have in design, even queer people, because you'll be surprised that like when you're dealing with your own shit, when you're not when you're an executive leader and you're not out and you're struggling to like come to terms with your own identity, that trickles down to the rest of the queer people in your company who don't feel like they have a safe working environment. It's all of these things that we want to be able to reach. And we decided to do the summit as a way to bring this data to, to a bigger stage. And we wanted to, for the first time, really hear from other LGBTQ voices, other LGBTQ designers and have them discuss some of the statistics that we found in the report and shed their own experiences on that. So we're going to have a few panels that are based on sections from the report. So one of the panels that we're going to have is is about trans perspective in design. We basically found that trans respondents were consistently overrepresented in facing discrimination. So we want to be able in the the workplace. So we want to be able to talk through what are some solutions we can put forward to change this in the future. So the goal of all the panels is to really talk about some of the statistics, but also just share your experience as an LGBTQ person and have people uh, have that feel seen and heard. So we're really excited about the the speakers. I'm not going to drop some names yet. (laughs) Uh, although they're probably going to be out by the time this is confirmed, this goes live. But I'm super excited. And I think it's really the first time that we're putting on an event for the community where they can see all of themselves reflected because all of our community participated in the survey. And even people that were outside of the Queer Design Club community, you know, people who aren't members per se. So we're excited to bring it to a wider audience. We're excited to bring it to a wider stage. And Part of my secondary goal of the summit is to really align the organization as a research-focused and, and mission-based organization that is doing this work, not just today, not just tomorrow, but, but we're going to be doing this work for our people for a while. And we want to be able to find a like-minded organization that will help us do that work. So we're not professional researchers. I do this because I'm passionate about our community. I'm passionate about finding out who they are. I'm passionate about making sure that we have these data points to leverage when people talk about improving conditions for LGBTQ people. But I'm not a researcher. So maybe there's a better way we could be doing this. Maybe there is a smarter way we could be doing this. So I think in as we grow the study, we want to be able to align ourselves with a research-based organization that can also help us and guide us to making this study even more sound than it is right now. And I think that would be our ultimate goal is to have this study be something that's continued, something that is super serious and asks the right questions, a lot of questions, and helps people really understand the problems that we have in the industry. Well, I know that we have a lot of companies and a lot of people that work at big companies that listen to this. So my hope is that once this interview comes out, people get a chance to hear it, that you'll start to get some interest around that. Because I think what you're doing is is super important, you know, from a research perspective, but also just from a general community and society perspective, not just even the design community, LGBT community as well, you know, to be able to not only put the statistics behind 
the sort of incidents and things that are happening, but to really quantify it and then keep the work going to sustain the work. So people know that this is something that is like an industry benchmark to understand what the queer experience and design is and how they can bring more or how I guess people in general can bring more visibility and representation is super important. So I'm, I'm excited for the summit. I'm excited to see where queer design club goes in the future. I feel like you've really tapped into something here. Thank you. Thank you, Maurice. I just want to say thank you to you. I know you've been a a sounding board for us over the past couple of years as well, just like in running a community and being this being my first time being a a community leader. It's something that, you know, it takes a village. It really takes a village. It really does. Yeah. Now, even, you know, aside from all this, you are, you're working at Ghost to Note, you're doing the Queer Design Club with the Queer Design Count with the Queer Design Summit. You also have your own freelance practice. Uh, it's called Plant House Studio. Like, that tell me is. about that. Yeah, as if I wasn't already doing too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think like one of my goals for myself just personally has always been to run my own design studio. And I just feel like there's a level of like freedom that I get to have when people want to work with me. I am my own boss. I I love to take the projects that I want to work on, say no to the projects I don't want to work on, and just generally be able to like design things with with you know no constraints of of what do other people think. So I was always a freelancer on the side of of any full time job. It, it started really after college because I was working at BAM and it was a nonprofit, so I was making some money but i thought okay i could make a couple logos on the side and make a a couple hundred bucks more and it started just doing that for some extra cash and over the past five years it's really grown into like just a consistent stream of people mentioning me sharing my name sharing my portfolio and getting people wanting to work with me so it wasn't until about three or four years ago now that my partner, LG, and I had come together and decided we kind of wanted to formalize this business. And uh, my partner at the time, LG, was was figuring out how they would plug into the business. I was doing all the design and they were kind of handling all of the client management. And it's just grown over the years. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw an uptick in people wanting to work with us. And we had a really janky website at the time. And Nothing was super professional, but we saw this uptake in work. A friend of mine who I was working at the agency was leaving at the time. And he said, if you want a freelancer, I'll work with your studio. And I said, all right, sure. So now we had another person working with us. And I was able to kind of like give him some direction and do le- like more creative direct. And he was producing the work. LG was managing the clients. So we started there and then more requests came and another friend of mine was like, I'm looking for a job. I was like, do you want to freelance with our studio? She was like, yeah. So then we had two designers working with us. And now it's kind of become a full-time gig for everybody, right? So LG's running it full-time. Our two designers are still working with us full-time. And my goal has kind of shifted to learning how to run a business and then wanting to do it for Plan House on my own. So my My short-term goal is, like I said in the beginning, this is a hustle year for me where I'm working at Ghost Note, one, to work on some of the awesome projects and the clients that they have, but two, to really also understand how to run a business. And that's one of the things that I feel really grateful to Ghost Note for is like, from the time I joined, I was very upfront about like, listen, in five years, I'm going to be running my own agency. So 
Mm-hmm. I'm here to learn the business facts of, of what y'all are doing. I admire your work. Y'all are about six years ahead of where I feel like I am. How can I absorb my time at this agency to really learn how to run an agency? And at the same time, uh, LG and our other two designers are, are working on client stuff in the background. And I'm moonlighting and taking the knowledge that I learned at Ghostnow and kind of bringing it home and saying, you know, we have this process that we implemented at work. I think we should try it in the studio. It could really help. So, you know, I felt like I had to put in the time and learning how to run a business before jumping into running a business for the first time, right? Yeah. Because like, and, and I think that's that's a thing that at times it's tiring, at times it's rough, but I feel like if I stay on track, hopefully in 2023, I can leave my full-time job and just pursue Plant House. If the clients keep coming and, and going the way they've been, we feel very grateful and lucky that people want to work with us. And I feel really grateful and lucky that people want to keep giving us great opportunities to grow. You know, I think we've had a few contracts this year where they were bigger shoes than we were prepared to fill, but we stepped into them and I think we've grown into them a lot. So it's given me a lot of confidence to say, okay, I'm doing Plan House part-time right now and it's doing really well. If I do this full-time, we could be doing excellently. I just need to harness the the knowledge of how to run this business full-time. Because it's not just full-time by myself, right? It's full-time with three other people as well that we're sustaining. So I'm, I'm in my hustle year. I'm doing three jobs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> however... I do feel like it's really important right now for me to be a sponge and really learn how to do it right so that when I step into it, I can make hopefully a little bit less of the mistakes and go into it with some kind of knowledge. So that's part of one of the things I love about Ghostnote is they're very supportive of my own hustle. They're very open and transparent about the workings of the company and how to write a SOW, how to make sure things stay on track. And I feel like I'm really learning the business angle of it alongside the the art director part of it and making the fun stuff. I'm doing both things. So I'm excited for that. That's good. It sounds like, I mean, I think it's good that it's that uh, ghost note is transparent in that way to kind of let you all know, like, this is how the business, this is how the business yeah. is. This is how it works. So it's not just, of course, showing up and doing your job, but also you're kind of gaining this almost secondary education in a way. Yeah. And and that's something that I think doesn't really exist in our design industry right now is like, there's no course to go learn how to run your own studio. There's no yeah. course to say how to found your own agency. It's all about kind of like, you got to fumble your way into figuring it out. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what Ghost Note told me as well. They were like, we've been doing this for eight years and we're just now figuring it out. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so what can I learn <laughs> that, that you can impart that knowledge on me and I can maybe not take eight years to figure it out. <laughs> and I really love that about like just a community culture is like that resource sharing is so important because I would love to help any other person who's thinking about founding their own business, their own agency, like we don't have the resources out there. So we need to be in community with each other more and figure that out. Yeah. Now it, it takes a village to do all this. As you said, who's your village? Like who's, who have been the mentors and the, and the peers who have really kind of helped you get to where you are now? I have a list of them. One I would say is one of the first people that I met in the design industry was 
a designer working at BAM at the time. Their name is Kyle Richardson. And they were, they, they are an incredible designer and a, a friend of mine still. And just someone who like brought their authentic self to work. And me being a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed intern, I was like, oh, you're, you're my role model. I like what you're doing. All of your work is fire. <laughs> you, your personality is so dope. I want to be like you. And it was really the first person who showed me that I could show up to work and be myself, be a little crazy, be a little funky, be funny with your coworkers. And it, 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 she, Kyle always just gave me a sense of ease and like the ability to just be you. Another one of my mentors, I would say, is someone that has always like helped me open doors. And this is a person named Liz, Liz O, who uh, used to be the head of design at Compass, is now the head of design at Grammarly. And Liz has always been someone who like, will give me an opportunity that I can grow into. And I think it's really people like that who are in positions of power, who can see potential in you and open a door that will change your life. And Liz has done that for me uh, a few different times. And I think that's, that's important to acknowledge people who, who will, are willing to take a chance on you. Another one of mine, uh, a close friend of mine, Amelie Lamont. I love Amelie. She's uh, someone that has helped me navigate just the space of being a community leader and, and running a community and kind of like navigating the world out there. And with someone who I really met online and we connected in real life for the first time at XOXO conference where they invited me to be part of the, the POC house. And I was just honored to, to be included in a space that like there were so many amazing creatives and thinkers and, and people who were just so themselves. And I think that's something that I'm really drawn to. I'm really drawn to people who can be unapologetically themselves, mm-hmm. recognize that and like open, use that as their superpower um, and use that as, as the thing that can open doors for other people. So those are my three mentors. I, ha- I can probably name a million more, but I can't remember at the moment. But I guess something that I try to do is I try to learn a little bit from everybody. It may not be in a technical way of like, this person taught me design or this person taught me this, but it's more in a, what is it about you that makes you you? Is it your ability to show up and be yourself? Is it your ability to stand up for what you believe in? Is it your ability to take no shit and like, let people know that? I try to really like learn some of these qualities from all of the people that I think are doing it right. And like I said earlier, I just want to be a sponge and learn about what I should be doing in my future, what I think is right. So that's kind of how I approach the people that I look up to. Nice. We had Amelie on the show. Oh, that was a while ago. I think she was like episode mm-hmm. 140, mm-hmm. like eight or 149, something like that. It was in the one forties. I remember that. And you yeah. mentioned XOXO. Was that in 2018? It must have been 2019. The year before the pandemic, 2019. Yeah. Year before. Okay. 2019. I went to XOXO in 2018, and I remember oh. Amelie and Kat doing the POC yes. house. Cat um, Small, also another person that I love and, and is a, an icon and a, a role model for me. Kat's a person who champions uh, game, developer, game developers of color and has yeah. been running that conference in that community for a long time just amazing people, amazing people that are out there, like showing up as themselves and making dope shit. Yeah. She's great. I love Kat. She's doing 
I, I, we we kind of just talked over email, I guess maybe about a couple of weeks ago or something, because she's about to make a, a big move. I'm sure it'll probably be announced by the time this interview comes out, but she's making mm-hmm. big moves now because she just left Asana and uh, is about yeah. to announce where she's going next. So I'm, Ooh, I'm excited to be- see. I could believe that. <laughs> what does success look like for you now? I think success looks like being able to feel confident in the things I want to pursue. I feel like I always have this like yearning to be super secure before I make a big move, which is probably why I'm still at Ghost Note and not doing my full-time thing yet. But I think success looks like having the confidence to do that, make those decisions and live the life that I want to live. Find balance between my work and my my personal life and my free time and feel satisfied and nourished by the work that I am doing at work. So I think that is that is what success looks like for me. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I know you've kind of given some mm-hmm. sort of benchmarks for where you want Queer Design Club to go and I guess even with where you want Plan House to go, but if you could forecast five years from now, it's 2027. What's Rebecca Brooker doing? Well, hopefully Rebecca Brooker is no longer the only person running Queer Design Club. Because <laughs> <laughs> then that wouldn't be nice. But I think Rebecca Brooker will still be uh, a fierce advocate and speaker or someone who is called upon to help champion LGBTQ rights. I want to be known for helping people show up as themselves, even helping myself show up as myself. And I want to still be in the creative seat, making amazing things that that have impact and that have the ability to change lives and change perceptions and make the world like a tiny bit of a better place. So I hope in five years from now, I'm doing that. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find more information about you, about your work, about everything that you're doing? Like, where can they find that online? So you can find me at RebeccaBrooker.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Becky Brooker or on Instagram at Becca Brooker. And you can find Queer Design Club at Queer Design Club on all channels. and. I'm an open book. So anybody who ever wants to reach out, feel free to email me. I would be happy to connect with anyone who wants to talk. Sounds good. Well, Rebecca Brooker, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a feeling that we were going to have a really deep, wide ranging conversation. I'm so glad that we were (laughs) able to touch on, I mean, just so many different things talking about representation, entrepreneurship, building community, I feel like you've done so much already. Like you've already had this very prolific career and I just want to see where you go from here. I hope that people are listening, really support the work that you're doing and really can help put like some real velocity behind the plans that you have, because I feel like we're going to be talking about the work that you're doing years and years from now. And I'm I'm just so glad to have had you on the show to really just kind of explain like, this is who I am. This is where I came from. And this is the work that I'm trying to do. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Maurice. It's been an amazing conversation. It's been an amazing time. Thank you for creating this space so that we could, we could continue to have these conversations with 
myself and other people who are doing good work. Big, big thanks to Rebecca Brooker. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Rebecca and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. You know, building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we're doing a lot of great things over here. We just mentioned at the top of the show, the whole thing about the 10th Collective. So we'd love to hear from you. You know, don't be a stranger. Hit us up on social media. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.